Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if, it is poss- if this cannot pass unless I drink from it, your will to be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, be with us now as we consider your word. We pray that we will behold your Son more and more by faith. We pray that your Spirit will be with us. Give us listening ears. Give us hearts uh, that receive your word. Be with the preacher and be with those who are hearing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if someone was to ask you the question, uh, what is prayer, uh, what would be the answer that you might give? And I like to think of maybe my son or daughter, or, or if I ever have a daughter, Lord willing, I don't, um, or anyone uh, that is little asks me, um, what is prayer? Uh, what would be your response Question 178 of the Westminster Larger Catechism asks, what is prayer? And here's the answer that they give. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. A very clear, concise, but rich definition of what prayer is. In prayer, we come to the Father by faith in the merits of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. So in other words, prayer is not merely praying to the Father, but prayer is a Trinitarian work. We come to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. Prayer is the communication with our God in heaven And it is in prayer where we throw all of our needs to God. We align our will to God's will. Prayer is casting anxieties onto God, as it says in 1 Peter 5, 7, crying to God in trouble, Psalm 34, 17, and making needs known to him in every circumstance, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. You see, friends, prayer is not simply thinking about God or having concerns, but rather prayer is expressing need from the heart to God. 
prayer is the pouring out of our soul to our Heavenly Father through Christ in the Spirit. This is why prayer is not to be prayed merely from our lips, but prayer is to be prayed from the very depths of our souls. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said, God looks not at the elegancy of your prayers to see how neat they are, nor at the geometry of your prayers to see how long they are, nor at the um, arithmetic of your prayers to see how many they are, nor yet at the music of your prayers, nor at the sweetness of your voice, nor yet at the logic of your prayers, but at the sincerity of your prayers, how hearty they are. Not how eloquent, not how long, not how sweet, but how hearty your prayers are. In prayer, and more than any other time in our lives, the heart gets a chance to speak. The heart speaks in prayer. And what we do in prayer is we climb upon the lap of our Heavenly Father to have conversation with Him. Uh, B.M. Palmer says, Prayer is the language of creaturely dependence. A really great way of how us relate to God in prayer. It's a creature throwing themselves at the mercy seat of God. In prayer, we come to God as beggars, climbing upon our Father's lap to have regular conversation. The great Swiss theologian John Calvin viewed prayer as gaining access to the very throne room of God, where we meet God by faith, and Calvin says, and we lisp into his ear. In prayer, we speak to the one who knows everything about you as if he knows nothing about you. That is how we are to approach prayer. Yes, God knows all things, but we are to speak to him as if he knows nothing about what's going on in our lives. That's where heart and soul comes in. And there's many things that can be taught about prayer. But for our sermon today, I want us to consider just two simple lessons. Number one, what true prayer looks like. And number two, what false prayer looks like. What true prayer looks like and what false prayer looks like. And we'll do that in, those are the two points, a model of true prayer. And number two, a model of false prayer. Let's consider the first point, and that is a model of true prayer. The great Dutch theologian Herman Bovink said, Christ is our example and ideal. His life is the shape, the model, that our spiritual life must assume and towards which it must grow. Christ is the model of our life that we are to follow. Our reflection in this life must be one of Christ. And one of the greatest chapters in the Bible gives us a model of how we are to pray. Matthew 26, again, verses 36 through 46 says, Then Jesus came to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. As we come to chapter 26 
of the Gospel of St. Matthew, we come to one of the most important moments of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. For 25 chapters, Matthew has been giving us vivid descriptions of the life and ministry of Christ from the moment of his conception to when he's in the temple at 12, to his miracles, to his parables. But as we come to chapter 26, we might have the most vivid picture of our Lord. It is a most vivid picture, one of both sorrow and victory. Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane begins what is called Christ's Passion. It's the start of his physical sufferings that will ultimately climax in his death on a cross. One theologian has said concerning the scene at the Garden of Gethsemane, here for the moment was the loneliest, saddest soul the world has ever had living in it, the Lord himself. Gethsemane was located east of the Kidron Brook, at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And Gethsemane has an interesting meaning. It means olive press. And it's fitting that Christ would find himself in a garden that means olive press, because when Christ is in the garden, he is being pressed. When Christ is in the garden, he is being squeezed, and all of this emotion is coming out of him, where he even sweats drops of blood. So overwhelmed of sorrow and, and weakness. This all begins in, our verse, in verse 37 of our text. He says, And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and distressed. Notice, Matthew says that Christ begins to be grieved and distressed. It is as if as soon as Christ enters the garden, a, a rush of sorrow filled his soul. And the reason is because in the garden the shadow of the cross began to penetrate into the human soul of Jesus Christ. The cross began to be more and more of a reality to Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that Christ was ignorant of what he was going to do. Christ knew that he was going to die. But in the garden, the climax of what Jesus was sent to do was just moments away. So many times in the gospel accounts we read of when people wanted to kill Jesus, he just slips away. Or when people come and they, they gather around him and Jesus knows that they want to kill him, he slips through the crowd unseen. He just vanishes. He hides himself behind various people. But here in the garden, there's no place to hide. There's no place to run. Jesus knows that his hour is finally at hand. The suffering, the agony, the pain, the betrayal, the hatred, the abandonment all began to penetrate into the soul of Christ. And as a result, Jesus says in verse 38, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Mothers, you know this well. When you are giving birth, you literally feel like you are going to die. At least that's what my wife told me. Well, think of that. Time's infinity. When we consider Christ in the garden, he is almost to the point of death. 
Now, there are many things that we can highlight in this garden scene, but for our sermon this morning, I want us to focus on the prayer of Jesus, specifically how Christ models for us what true prayer looks like. Consider with me what verses 37 and 38 say one more time. And 36. And Jesus came to them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be distressed and grieved. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Again, we've noted that as Christ enters the garden, his soul begins to be sorrowful. He begins to be grieved. Isn't that interesting, though? That the soul can feel things far worse than the body can. Jesus didn't die at that point. But his soul was so grieved. It was as if he already died. But notice what he does in verse 38. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. It is not as if Christ's soul being deeply grieved that we are to take marvel at, although we should. The eternal son says to his disciples, I'm grieving. But rather, the fact that he tells that to his disciples is that which we marvel at. A rush of sorrow just filled the soul of Christ. But notice, friends, that he doesn't leave the sorrow in his soul. Jesus doesn't say, I'm grieving. I have sorrow. I'm in a place of weakness. But you know what? It's my problem and I'm going to deal with it. But rather, he tells his brothers what's going on. He doesn't say, I'll let go and let God, a common phrase in the church today which is wrong but he tells his brothers guys I'm struggling right now the eternal son tells his brothers his disciples I'm going through something the one who is truly God and truly man tells his brothers my soul is grieved to the point of death and saints here is we are to learn from our sorrowful Christ Yes, we all grieve. Yes, we all will feel sorrowful at one time. But how many of us Christians take a lone ranger approach to Christianity? Many Christians live a me-centered life where all that matters is me and my relationship to God. But saints, I would argue that a right relationship to God involves others in that relationship as well. That's what it means to have a right relationship, or one of the things that means to have a right relationship with God. It's involving others in that relationship. And one of the ways we can do that is by allowing ourselves to be vulnerable to one another. What is Christ doing here? He's allowing himself to be vulnerable to his brothers. He doesn't say, I got it all together. I can handle it. I'm the eternal son. I've been given the spirit without the measure. I'll be fine. I know what's going to happen. I'm going to rise on the third day, ascend to the right hand of the Father. I'm going to be good, but no. He tells his brothers, I'm in pain. He's vulnerable in front of his friends. 
Friends, that is a mark of a true Christian. A true Christian is not one who has all their problems in order. A true Christian is one who knows they don't have their problems in order, but also allows their friends and their brothers and sisters in Christ to help them put their problems in order. A true Christian is not afraid, but at every opportunity is willing to embarrass themselves. Christ here is willing to embarrass himself. And this is so unlike the world's thinking, is it not? If we have something stuck in our teeth, we quickly remove it. If our hair is out of order, we wear a hat. If there's a stain on our shirt, then we quickly try to clean it up. Now, I'm not saying that those things are bad. But we can so be consumed with trying to uphold an image that says, I got it all together. That's the age that we live in. I'm good. I got it all together. It was the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, who struggled throughout his life with depression. It was the prince of the Puritans, John Owen, who had 11 kids, 10 who died in infancy. I say that to say this, the greatest giants of the faith struggled. We all struggle. And the great news about the Christian faith is that we don't have to struggle alone. Yes, we have been given the Spirit. Yes, we've been given the Father and the Son. But friends, the Father has adopted you into a family. The ones who sit next to you are your brothers and sisters in Christ. No, they don't share the same blood as you do. But they share the same Christ as you do. See, friends, Christ doesn't just die for individuals. Christ lived, died, and rose for the church. And the question I have for you this morning as we close this subpoint is this. What type of Christian are you? Really ask yourself, what type of Christian are you? Are you the Christian of James 5.16? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. That you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Or are you the Christian of Psalm 32.3? When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all night long. What Christian are you? Are you the Christian that keeps things to themselves? Are you the Christian that tells others, I'm struggling right now? The Christian of James 5.16 is unashamed of his and her sin. It's unashamed of his and her drama and mess. It's unashamed of their sorrow and is so willing to confess their struggles to others. But the Christian of Psalm 32.3 is the lone ranger, is the one that says, I can handle everything myself. And because of that, they groan all day long. How many of you have grown all day long just wanting someone to talk to? Well, friends, Christ has given to you brothers and sisters. He's given to you a family. And here in our text, Christ shows us which Christian we ought to be. He's not ashamed to tell his brothers that he's in an absolute position of weakness. 
Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 22:27, "But I am among you as one who serves." Great text. And here he says with not as many words, "I am among you as one who suffers." You think Christ doesn't understand your suffering? You think Christ doesn't know what you go through? Friends, reconsider. But we also see Christ models for us how a Christian is to wrestle in prayer. Consider with me verse 39, and he went a little beyond them, and he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now there's much rich theology in this verse alone. Books have been, hundreds and thousands of books have been written just on this verse alone. But notice two things from this text. First, Jesus falls on his face in praise. Now, I'm not cursing anyone who stands up in praise. I'm not saying that if you sit down and pray, that that's bad either. But when a man is in utter sorrow, when a man is in utter weakness, the position of your body reveals the position of your heart. And here, Christ's prostrated body reveals his prostrated heart. Here we see Christ falling on his face, pleading to God for help. Have you ever been there before? Just face down, asking the Lord, I need you. However way, I need you. Jesus is under such distress that Luke tells that he begins to sweat drops of blood that angels had to come alongside of him to counsel him. What is our Christ so humanly fearful of? What has brought him to this place of sorrow? Well, ultimately, it's the pain and suffering that he will endure on the cross. We must remember that although Christ was a divine person who was truly God, he's truly man, but he's the eternal son who assumed the weaknesses of our flesh. He wills himself to suffer. And given his circumstances, fear and sorrow and falling down on his face is a necessary response to what's about to happen. What what would you do? Knowing in just a few moments you will be sent to the electric chair. That's what the cross was in that time. That in a few moments that you will, be, you will suffer a death and suffer for a thing that you never even did. Christ never sinned, but he suffers on the behalf of sinners. He's read in the Old Testament of what will happen when the Messiah is hung on the tree. It's not as if Christ didn't know what was going to happen to him. He's read all of the Isaiah passages. He knows that his beard will be plucked out. He knows that his face will be slapped. He knows that his back will be whipped. He knows all of these things. Throughout his ministry, he's preached of his coming death. He said in Matthew 16 that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and he must be killed. He said in Matthew 17, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. He's been preaching and predicting his death. And now in Gethsemane, he must live out all of those sermons. 
he must live out every single time he's predicted his death. And he falls on his face and he says, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Essentially what he's saying is, I don't humanly want to undergo this. He's struggling. I don't want to do this. Who would want to die? His emotions and passions are telling him, I I don't want to do this, Father. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But notice, saints, that he doesn't allow his emotions and passions to override his reason. For he says next, not as I will, but as you will. He doesn't allow that what he feels to override that which is true. God's glory, the salvation of the elect. Friends, this is how we must wrestle with God in prayer. All of what we want, as Brother Anthony said, must come under the submission of God's will. It's not bad to want things. It's not bad to request things. But all things must come under submission to God's will. How many of us in our prayers make request after request to God and never say, but not my will, but yours be done? And the reason is because we think we know what's best for ourselves. But friends, if we believe that God has declared the end from the beginning, if we believe that all things come from the Father of lights, There's no variation of shadow due to change. If we believe in that God, that he works all things for good, then why not say, but Father, whatever you will be done, in spite of what I'm feeling, in spite of how I think it's going to be good for me. The death of my father wasn't good for me as a whole. Many of you have gone through tragedies at that time wasn't good for you. But looking back over however many years it's been, it's probably the best thing that's ever happened to me. Consider the things that you've gone through. When you look back now, it's probably the best thing that's ever happened to you. Why? Because you can sit here now and talk about it. And talk about the grace of God who pulled you through whatever you went through. And lastly, as we close this point, Christ in his prayer shows us that prayer is the best practical remedy that we can use in the time of trouble. It was Joe Beakey who said that his dad once told him, this is the best advice. Son, the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is this. A believer always has a place to go. The difference between a believer and an unbeliever is a believer always has a place to go. And what he means by that is a believer always has a place to go and pray. Friends, in times of trouble, what is the first thing you do? And where is the first place you go? We must model our Lord here in the garden. When his soul was full of sorrow, 
when he felt like if he was going to die, he had a place to go and he had a person to meet with. Prayer wasn't the last thing our Christ did, but prayer was the first thing our Christ did. And saints, this is the attitude that we are to have when we consider prayer. We are to confess our sorrows and sins to our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are to pray the desires of our hearts, but never without excluding God's will to be done. And in times of sorrow, in times of fear, in times of weakness, prayer is the first and best thing we can do. And don't just limit this to sorrow, but in all times pray. Let's now consider the last and final point, and that is a false model of prayer. A false model of prayer. We've seen in the last point that Christ gives to us what true prayer looks like. Now his disciples take the stage and they show us what a false model of prayer looks like. Let's read the text one more time. We, when Jesus came to, with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He came, he went again, saying a second time and prayed, uh, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? As we've noted, Christ has entered the garden and a rush of soul of sorrow has just entered into his soul. He tells the disciples of the emotions that he's feeling. And look what he says in verse 38. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Now, this is amazing, isn't it? Not only does Jesus tell his disciples about his sorrow, but he asked, can you pray for me? Now, I don't know about you, but this completely blows my mind. And let me give you the reason why. Because Jesus Christ is the eternal Son. He is all of what it means to be God. In his human nature, he possesses the Holy Spirit without measure. But here he tells finite men, his own creation, Pray for me. Jesus knows what's going to happen. Again, he's, he's going to die. He's going to rise. He's going to ascend. He knows the end point. But he tells his brothers, can you pray for me? Saints, if Christ wasn't too proud to ask for prayer, how much more should we ask for prayer? 
Jesus is far better than you are. Hypostatically united to a divine person, given the spirit without measure, but is not too proud to ask for prayer. But notice how these disciples respond to Jesus' request for prayer. Verse 40, And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. These men who were to pray for our Lord, what did they do? They fall asleep on our Lord. Not one time, but three times they fall asleep on Christ. And friends, we are to learn from these disciples' sins. Friends, why is it that these men couldn't stay up and pray for our Lord? Was it because it was late in the night and they were sleepy? Was it because they were so moved with sorrow with what Christ has told them that their eyes were heavy and they just couldn't stay up? I would argue that the main hindrance for these men not praying is the thing that hinders us in our prayer life. They simply didn't see prayer as essential. They didn't see prayer as essential. Friends, why is it that we don't pray enough? Some might say, I don't have enough time in the day. Common answer. Some might say, I don't know how to pray. Some might even say, I'm simply lazy. Indeed, these reasons are all contributing factors to why we don't pray enough. I get that. But brothers and sisters, at the heart of it, the reason why we don't pray enough is because we don't see prayer as that important. It's not time. It's not laziness. But it's because we don't see the value of prayer. Think of all the things you do in a day. Each and everything that you do in your day holds value to your life. You have to eat, take your kid to school, get ready, take a shower, watch TV, get on the phone, talk to whoever you need to talk to. And friends, we can view prayer like an appendix in a book, can we not? It's the last thing we do. It's the last thing that we think of after all the essential stuff is done. That's why I never say, don't pray right before you go to bed. Now, you can do that. That's fine. But right before you go to bed, you're going to fall asleep. And you might not have the same passion and heart. Some of us think that, well, what's the use of praying? Since God's in control of all things, and quite frankly, my prayers never get answered, then why should I pray? That's common. I've asked myself that after months and months of praying for a specific thing and never seeing it come to pass. Well, what's the use? A God who hears me, he doesn't hear me. We can ask ourselves, when God doesn't answer our prayers, is there any value in praying at all? But saints, I would argue that unanswered prayer in many ways is better than answered prayer. Unanswered prayer in many ways is better 
than answered prayer. Now, how can I say something like that? How is unanswered prayer? How can that be better than answered prayer? And the reason is this. Unanswered prayer reveals how you view your God. What's the first thing that we are tempted to say when our prayers aren't answered according to our timetable? God must not be hearing me. God doesn't love me. God is somehow punishing me. God has changed. Friends, none of these things are true. God doesn't answer prayer, not because he doesn't love you, not because he's not hearing you, and not because he's punishing you, but rather God, through unanswered prayer, is strengthening your faith in him. When God doesn't answer your prayer, it's as if God is saying, do you trust me enough to know that I know what's good for you? When God doesn't answer your prayer, he's saying, do you truly believe that I've declared the end from the beginning? When he doesn't answer your prayer, he's saying, do you love me enough? Even when I delay or even when I say no. How do you view me when I don't answer your prayer? Unanswered prayer can be of great benefit to the believer. Why? Because it keeps the believer as a beggar to God. It keeps a believer running back to the mercy seat of God. In fact, I would argue that the root of our faith often grows deepest in the soil of unanswered prayer. How does faith prosper and flourish? It's when God doesn't answer our prayer and we remain at the foot of his mercy seat. Now, is answered prayer great? Yes, it is. But friends, some of us need to remain beggars. Some of us need to be reminded of who our God is. Saints, we have no excuse not to pray, especially when we know that many of our brothers and sisters are in need of prayer. You've just heard of all the people that need prayer this morning. It was said of the great John Knox son-in-law, John Welsh, that he would pray up to seven hours a day. I'm not saying mimic that. (laughs) But if you want to, go ahead. And his wife said of him that he would never sleep through a night without at some point waking up to pray. And one time he was in the next room and she wouldn't go in the room. She would just talk to him outside of the door. She said, John, come in. You're going to get sick. And he said, oh, my dear honey, I have 3,000 souls to care for, and I know not how it is with many of them. You see, John Wells viewed prayer in a complete opposite view of how the disciples viewed prayer. First, he saw prayer as essential to Christian life, but he believed that prayer is not simply about him. Prayer is not merely about making our own requests and petitions to God, but rather prayer is lifting up to God the petitions of others as well. You see, we can also come to prayer 
from a me-centered perspective, my requests, my petitions, and never ever pray for our brothers and sisters in the faith. The disciples didn't understand that. You see, they knew that Christ is in sorrow. They knew what was happening with their brother. John Welsh didn't know what was happening with 3,000 of his church members, but yet he knew that something is happening. And I need to pray for them. One of my favorite quotes is from a Puritan. I forgot it. Maybe it's Isaac Newton who says, The greatest comfort in my life is knowing that somewhere, somewhere, someone, somewhere is lifting up my worthless name to God. That someone is praying for me. I love the story that Joe Beakey tells of this elderly woman who he goes and visits to the hospital and she was in so much pain that day and he tells her at the end, you know, I really wish I could do more for you. I'm sorry. And she says, Pastor, I must rebuke you because you've done for me what none of these doctors could ever do for me. You've prayed for me. See, we can be so agnostic when it comes to prayer. Maybe he hears me, maybe he doesn't. Maybe prayer works, maybe it doesn't. Prayer works. Because we serve the God who is living. And we are his children and he hears our prayers. And like I've said, these men saw the sorrow that was afflicting our Christ. But they were too busy about their needs of their own. They were too busy about themselves. And when we pray, and when we don't lift up the names and problems of others, we, like the disciples, have fallen asleep on our brothers and sisters. You see, friends, the disciples here are not only teaching us of their own errors, but they're putting a mirror in front of our own faces and showing us the errors of our own. In closing, friends, there are many things that we have learned this morning. We've learned what true prayer looks like by the model of Christ. We've learned what false prayer looks like by the model of disciples. The great thing about today especially is that we can model what true prayer looks like by coming this evening and gathering together praying for one another, telling one another, if there is any sorrow or sin in our lives, can you pray for me? But we can also not model what 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 prayer looks like by, by doing what the disciples did, by falling asleep when the church gathers for corporate prayer. This morning, I challenge you not to fall asleep on your brothers and sisters in Christ today. The world today is gathering in front of a television. But the saints of God today will gather in a church building and will pray for one another and lift one another up and encourage one another. Speak and testify of all the great things that God has done in our lives. That is the greatest thing. That is greater than any championship one could ever ring when It's just hearing what God is doing in the prayers that are answered in the lives of others and then others testifying that God has answered my prayer, but man, I'm holding on to him. I'm holding on to that which I'm praying for.
Let's pray.